0: You know, Marvel is on a significant roll right now. Not only do they are they getting everything up and running again. We've got Black Widow coming out. We've you know we've already had Wandavision, which was a huge global success. Wandavision was for them. We're in the midst of Falcon and Winter Soldier, and oh my God, things are picking up on Falcon and the Winter Soldier. We know we've got Loki coming. We've just got the trailers for that. Plus, we've got other shows already in production like Hawkeye, like Ms. Marvel, and now we can add another show to the list that is officially shooting and now in production. Word has now come out, it is official. She-Hulk. Disney Plus's Marvel show She-Hulk starring uh, Tatiana Maslany is now officially shooting, Rob. It's no longer theoretical. It's no longer, you know, some idea that's out there. It's actually shooting. Now this comes to us from the folks over at Coming Soon who write the fo- following, the now-filming listing on George's official state website confirms that production on Marvel Studios' upcoming She-Hulk series has finally begun in Trilla Studios in Atlanta and is expected to shoot until August 30th, so not a terribly long shoot they've got lined up. The filming start for the, ta- the, filming start for the Tatiana Mislani led MCU series was previously delayed last year due to the ongoing pandemic, which, of course, has affected everything in the industry. This marks Marvel Studios' project that is currently in production, their third project that is in production right now along with Miss Marvel and Hawkeye which are also in production with both began shooting last year so Rob, we've got She-Hulk is now in production and shooting Rob, there was a time I remember this was back a couple years ago when Age of Ultron was coming out Mm -hmm. and uh, one of the coolest things I've ever done in my career. Uh, Marvel invited me to their big press day on the Disney lot and asked me to be the moderator for their big Age of Ultron press day. (laughs) And so I got to go and I was the one, you know, I had the entire cast there and I was moderating the thing. And um, it's the one where Robert Downey Jr. said infamously to me, the next time I'm not asked the first question, I'm fucking leaving, which was... And he said it, it was really funny, but I remember talking to Kevin Feige before we started the event and he was like, he looked bewildered. Like I'm literally standing outside and he pulls up somebody, you know, he has a, got a driver driving up in a golf cart and I'm like, dude, you look frazzled. And he's like, we're working on this. We just had this with Ant-Man. This is around all this time was going on. We've got a new trailer that's supposed to launch in a couple of days. Then I'm do- overseeing the final cut on that. And we've got these two other things in production at the same time. And it was like, and we're trying to launch, we're trying to launch Age of Ultron. They've, that's nothing to what they've got right now. They are currently in production. They've got Falcon Winter Soldier airing now. They got Loki coming out imminently so they're getting ready for the launch of that they've got three shows in production they've got two movies in production they've got three films to launch this year I don't know how these people do it so that part to me is absolutely insane the way they've scaled up is I I don't think they can go any further than they are right now I mean it's just just too much but that said She-Hulk is something that I never would have thought they would have done live action I'm not a big fan of derivative characters Rob I like And and She-Hulk is kind of ultimately a derivative character of Hulk. I'm not, I don't love the idea of derivative characters, but I got to tell you, with the casting that's been going on, with what we've been hearing about, the kind of angles they're taking, now that it's shooting, I got to say I'm pretty excited about it. Anyway, Rob, you hear about this, number one, that She-Hulk is now in production, but number two, it's while they've got, forget the movies, they've got like now three shows in production at the same time. What do you make of this whole thing?
1: Well, first of all, you know, they've, they've got such a well-oiled machine over at Marvel. They really know what they're doing. They've had 10 years to perfect it. And I, I, you know, I'm excited from, uh, judging from what we've received from WandaVision and Falcon, the Winter Soldier, this is the most, this is some peak television. I mean, they're sparing no expense. But what I do love about this whole idea is, you know, they've always gone back and they've always explored other genres. Of things, and I never thought. Obviously, She-Hulk in the comics is in the legal profession. This could be a their their stab at a legal drama in the MCU, (laughs) L.A. Law, The Practice. You know, any take your pick. Uh there's been so many great legal dramas. The uh, there there was a show called The Defenders early in the sixties and seventies that I used to like that E. G. Marshall was in. I mean, I I I I love that they're doing this. Not only that, but it's I mean, I see that this is a their David Kelly show. You know, like uh, that's Ali a good McBeal. that's a good
0: example. I like that.
1: You know, like a David Kelly, and I I just I'm there for it, John, because what I really have been loving about WandaVision and Falcon the Winter Soldier is the exploration into the rest of the MCU away from Avengers headquarters. And we're going to get more. I mean, we got a little bit of that in those Netflix shows, but they they always felt self-contained as much as they kind of referred to other things. I I, I always saw them as their own thing, whereas these Marvel shows are exploring the broader ramifications of the MCU. And I can't wait to see, like, What's the daily life of someone like She-Hulk? You know, like, where does she go get coffee? (laughs) I I don't know why. that. (laughs) I mean, it's just... I I feel like we're going to get all that. And what's it like? Does she date? Does she go out on dates? Like, what's it like to date She-Hulk? You know, Uh, and I, I think that we might... See these are the questions. That. These are
0: the deep questions that we ponder. Who's She-Hulk dating? By the way, you know, in talking about like three shows in production, there's going to be a fourth year very soon. We've been seeing the videos of Oscar Isaac, Rob, training, getting ready, getting yeah. in shape for Moon Knight. And, you know, you know, that one's coming too. I, I, I am curious, though, as you see, you know, the level that a one division was able to hit, as you see the level that Falcon Winter Soldier is now starting to hit, does that make you nervous for Moon Knight or does it make you more excited for something like Moon Knight?
1: Well, you know, my great love of the character, my whole thing about Moon Knight is there's been different iterations of Moon Knight, different kinds. Like when I fell in love with Moon Knight, he wasn't necessarily crazy. The the roots had been planted, but it was much more of a Batman-esque character that had multiple secret identities. And I always thought that was really really cool. But if they embrace the fact that he's kind of snapped psychologically, it could be a really interesting exploration into that kind of thing. And I, I, I dude, I got to say, as these Marvel shows continue on, I mean, Falcon, the winter soldier, after that fourth episode, it's got two more episodes. How can you not be excited for these shows that simply the diversity in their approach and I, I mean the globe trotting in Falcon and Winter Soldier. Moon Knight is a pretty contained show, more like one of the uh, Netflix Marvel shows, New York, whatever. Uh, I I'm really excited.
0: Yeah, and just so, to see what they do. Yeah. It, it is nuts when we start to ponder it. And so, yeah. guys, when you look at the extreme excellence and the world spanning like hype that got going on one division, with you seeing how like Falcon and Winter Soldier has really gotten better, especially this last episode is one of the best episodes of TV I've seen on Disney Plus. Now we've got She Hulk into we have lots of stuff going on. Question is for you guys. What do you think? About this, She-Hulk is no longer a theory, guys. It is actually shooting. It's in front of cameras and rolling now. How do you guys feel about that? Jump on down to the comment section below and let us know your thoughts. Okay, guys. With that down, let's go off to another off the top, and that's this. You know, Rob, this morning, a brand new trailer for the Hitman's Wife's Bodyguard dropped. Now, the first Hitman's Bodyguard that came out a couple of years ago I th- I quite enjoyed. I quite enjoyed. It wasn't great. It it had some missed opportunity stuff to there. Could have been something really really special, but at the end of the day, it was a movie I enjoyed. I liked it. Ryan Reynolds always entertains. Samuel Jackson is Samuel L. Jackson. Lazarus well, we saying this morning finally a brand new trailer for this follow-up movie that takes place, I think, four to six years after the events of the last one. I can't remember exactly. The Hitman and Wife's Bodyguard releases their first trailer for Ryan Reynolds and Samuel L. Jackson. And, of course, Selma Hayek. Selma Hayek's in this thing, too. By the way, Kung Fu Hot Dog sends in a Super Chat badge in the live chat. Thanks. Thanks, man. Appreciate that. Uh, so this comes to us from them. Um, so... We've got a uh, set four years after the events of the original bodyguard, uh, Michael, Bryce Reynolds, Michael Bryce, played by Ryan Reynolds, once again meets up with assassin Darius Kincaid, played by Samuel L. Jackson, as they embark on a new adventure to save Darius's wife, Sonia, played by Selma Hayek, from new threats. The sequel also stars, get this, Antonio Banderas, Morgan Freeman, Richard E. Grant, and Frank Grillo. That, to me is a fantastic signing sounding lineup. I love the lineup. Anyway, the trailer drops this morning. And I, I thought the trailer was really good. I I thoroughly enjoyed the trailer. It's Ryan Reynolds being Ryan Reynolds, but that's exactly what I want Ryan Reynolds to be. The guy that's just too charming. Samuel Jackson's great. Selma Hayek looks amazing in it. It just looks funny and exciting and fun. The action of the first Hitman's bodyguard is one of the things they nailed really well. I thought the action in the first one was very fun. And so if they can nail that and get the good humor, I'm not looking for an Oscar winner here. Just deliver what this thing promises to be. Give us a good time. And I think this trailer kind of suggests that that's what we might get. Rob, you've had a chance to check out this new trailer for The Hitman's Wife's Bodyguard. What did you make of it?
1: Well, you know, The Hitman's Bodyguard was, to me, a a huge surprise. You know, it was one of those things I thought it was going to be kind of low rent, one of those gold, Stone Entertainment movies that Lionsgate puts out. I loved it. I thought it was, I mean, is it high art? No. But I I really enjoyed the camaraderie and the, the interplay between Sam Jackson and Ryan Reynolds. I thought Selma Hayek was great. I liked the action involved. And it, it was obviously a much bigger hit than they thought. It did not surprise me that they made a sequel to this movie. And like the first one, it looks like it's lavishly produced. I mean, that just the shot in the trailer where he's sitting there reading the secret with the headphones on (laughs) and there's there's the mayhem behind him. You know, that might be the easy kind of a joke, but it's hard to pull something like that off. It just it. I'm you know what? I'm in. I I think it looks it looks exactly. It looks exactly like what I would want from it. And how many movies can you say that about?
0: Uh, Tragically few. (laughs)
1: <laughs> there's one more that we're going to talk about though that you can
0: yeah we'll get to that in just a second but the question is for you guys have you guys had a chance to see the hitman's wife's bodyguard trailer we like it quite a bit what did you guys think about it did it make you more excited for the film were you already excited do you not care about it jump on down in the comment section below and let us know your thoughts alright guys with that down let's do one last off the top because a couple things did drop this morning and that last thing off the top is this Another movie we've had our eyes on is Army of the Dead. Zack Snyder getting back to his kind of zombie kind of roots that was near the beginning of his career, getting out and and, uh, stuff. The sounds of it sounds really good. The idea of combining a heist film with a zombie genre film in one of my favorite places in the world, Las Vegas. What's not to like? Now, the first trailer came out a little while ago, and I'm not going to lie. The first trailer I didn't think was great. I, I And again, kind of reemphasizing that Netflix just ain't very good at marketing their stuff. And I just couldn't understand how a zombie heist film in Vegas, how you couldn't put together a good, compelling trailer. Because it wasn't. It wasn't a very good trailer. Well, they corrected that, Rob. They just came out with a new trailer for Army of the Dead. It's almost about three minutes long. And this trailer is should have been the first trailer they came out with. This trailer was great. Because not only does this trailer for Army of the Dead give you a a better sense of what is the story and going on, a little bit of a taste of the characters involved, a definite idea about what they're dealing with in the zombies at hand, and then you top it all off with the great Kenny Rogers, the gambler... You got to know when to hold them. I'm watching this trailer. I'm like, this, this should have been the trailer they launched their ad campaigns with. this. I mean, it's got a little bit of a, um, I mean, it's nowhere near as good as the Logan trailer, but I mean, it's got that flavor, right? It's got that flavor of of a Logan trailer, but instead of Johnny Cash, it's it's, uh, um, Kenny Rogers. I thought it was really good. Now, the one thing that I remain a little bit a little iffy on is one of my favorite guys in Hollywood. Is Dave Batista. This is one of the nicest, uh, one of the coolest guys um, in the business. Full disclosure: Like when we did our 24-hour marathon to raise money for the typhoon victims in the Philippines, like Dave Batista was the first celebrity said, "Hey, I'll 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 jump on." I'll jump on and help you raise money for that. And he is just, every time I've had a chance, he's just one of the sweetest guys. And he's very aware. He's like, I'm not the greatest actor in the world, man. I'm very lucky that I get to do this. But he's gotten better and better and better. I do wonder though, Rob, I'm going to admit, I wonder if he can lead a film. Because, you know, I watched Stuber, not so good. And then I watched that one where he was the CIA operative and he has the little girl with him. Oh my God, that was terrible. I, I just, as we see Dave Batista, who's one of my favorite guys in this business, and he gets better and better, I don't, I, I wonder if he's now at a point that he can actually like lead a film. So that's going to be interesting to see. But that aside, this was the trailer that should have been their first trailer. This should have been everybody's first taste of this movie. This was a great trailer because we always say, Rob, the measure of a trailer is, Is it – does it take your excitement level, no matter if it's high or low, and bump it up a few notches? This trailer bumps your your excitement for this movie up several notches. I thought it was great. Rob, you had a chance to take a look at it. What did you think?
1: Uh, John, I loved this trailer. (laughs) And, you know, one of my favorite horror films of all time, one of my favorite movies of all time, is George Romero's original Dawn of the Dead. And I've been a zombie fan forever. And zombies are – sorry, but they're so played out, you know, and I, it's like, what are they going to do? I mean, the girl with all the gifts was good. What are they going to do? Like army of the dead. Okay. There's a lot of dead people walking. I get it. But this trailer revealed something to me that I did not expect an idea of intelligent zombies. Like you had pointed out very astutely that it reminded you of I am legend, the Will Smith. I am legend, which is based on Richard Matheson's novel. Where, yes, the, the, in the novel, vamp, uh, the vampires are intelligent and the vampire has been flipped. Robert Neville's character is the one killing the vampire, so he's the villain. That was the way it was in the book. But when I was watching this, I'm like, okay, this is really interesting. From an intellectual standpoint, now I've got a reason to watch this. It's not just yet another zombie movie. And I have to tell you about the Dave Batista thing, there's a shot in the trailer where he's running through a casino on the on the game the, the like the poker the roulette the roulette and poker and blackjack he's running along the tables as the zombies are chasing him through the casino and he's got this major this huge gun and he's just blowing these zombies away i'm like all right i mean i'm so in i'm looking at this going this is... You know, people talk about Zack Snyder and and bringing him back, restore the Snyderverse. I'm like, look, I want to see something new. And I think Zack Snyder's got a good thing going with Netflix. I'm like, how good can this movie be? They've greenlit a prequel series. They're doing a, an animated show. I'm like, a really? After this trailer, I'm like, oh, I get it now. I mean, Zack Snyder is firmly ensconced. In Netflix, doing 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 movies for Netflix, after watching this trailer, I'm like this trailer knows exactly what it wants to be, I think the movie probably does too, and again I couldn't believe I liked Zack Snyder's Dawn of the Dead, it was the one movie I went into wanting to hate it, I literally went in there, I've never done this before, I wanted to hate Zack Snyder's Dawn of the Dead and I loved it, I was surprised and this movie, I shouldn't have been surprised, but I watched this trailer and I'm like give it to me, give it to me now, I want it, I want it now John, now
0: and here's the interesting thing about this, too. It does a couple of unique things. Number one, you already kind of mentioned one of the things you and I were talking off air about how this is very reminiscent of I Am Legend, where it's like yeah, it, they become surprised. Wait a minute. These aren't just mindless things. Right. They're, they're organized. They think, yes, we've seen it before in I Am Legend. We've never seen it really applied to the zombie genre before. We've never seen it here before. So that's kind of one unique kind of spin on it. The second kind of unique spin on it that I don't see anybody talking about, but I think is rather interesting, at least what we got from the trailer. The world doesn't know there's a zombie apocalypse going on. Right. It, it seemed, what I got from the trailer, and maybe the trailer's misleading, I don't know, but it seemed like they just thought that Vegas was quarantined and the money's just sitting there waiting to be taken, and they can just go in there and get it, and- they seemed legitimately surprised and shocked. Like, wait a minute. What are those things? It's like, well, there is that news
1: report in the beginning of the trailer, but I think people think it's, it's contained or that it's not as big as it is, but they looked, the soldiers
0: looked like legitimately surprised. What, wait, what, what is this? It's a basic in and out job. No problem. Right. And that is also, listen, in a genre that has been suffocatingly predictable and boring for a long, long time. Yeah, bringing in new elements like that, I think gives it a, another layer of, uh, to 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 make up a word, interestingness. It brings a new layer of interestingness uh, to it that I kind of like. So it's going to be interesting. See now, of course, like any movie, maybe this thing will be complete shite. Who knows? But uh, listen, as far as the trailer goes, much better trailer than that first one. This one get will get you excited. It gets the blood pumping. It certainly did for me. Question is for you guys. What did you think about this new trailer for Army of the Dead? Did you, maybe you think we're overhyping. Maybe you didn't think it was all that great. I thought it was fantastic. What did you guys think? Jump into the comment section below and let us know your thoughts. Okay, guys. With all that down and out of the way, let's now move into our main topics today. And how do we select our main topics here on the John Campus Show? Well, it's really rather simple. You see, you guys come up with them. Whenever you come across a big topic issue or story that you think we should make a main topic here on the John Campion show, just go anytime 24 seven over to www.thejohncampionshow.com contact. Once you guys get there, you're going to see a form fill it out with your topic or question. It's totally free hit submit. And then maybe just maybe you might see your submission featured as a main topic here on the John Campion show with that down. Let's get into main topic number one. And our first main topic today gets submitted to us by Michael Burgett. And Michael Burgett writes, Hey John and crew, Uh, Jordan Voight-Roberts, director of Kong Skull Island, is set to direct a live-action version of the popular anime franchise Gundam, or Mobile Suit Gundam, for for Netflix per report from Deadline legendary is also on board as well and we have seen before how well voight roberts and legendary have worked well in the past what are your thoughts on this news thanks very much all right thanks for sending that in man and yeah listen there has been a lot of talk over the past 13 14 15 years about live action versions of gundam Live action versions of what's the other giant mecha robot anime thing? Um, R- Robotech. Robotech. Robotech, which I think Toby Maguire was at one point attached to produce and maybe even star in. That was like 12 years ago. and Nothing ever happened to that. But we've heard a lot of reports over the year of Gundam, Robotech, several of these things. Nothing really ever comes to fruition. Well, now we've got, of course, the director, uh, the director of Skull, uh, Kong Skull Island, which I quite like. I like that movie. Now he's supposedly signed on to do a mobile suit Gundam movie for Netflix. This comes to us from the folks over at Variety who writes, From giant apes to giant robots, filmmaker Jordan Voight-Roberts, Kong Skull Island, is set to direct and produce a live-action adaptation of wildly popular anime series Gundam for Legendary and Netflix, the streamer announced on Monday. Famed comic book writer Brian K. Vaughn, this is a huge part of this, which we knew about this part for a while, but uh, Brian K. Vaughn, Why the Last Man, amongst many other things, is writing the screenplay and will executive produce. Legendary's Kale Boiter is overseeing the project along with Sunrise, the Japanese animation studio behind Gundam franchise. Legendary will distribute the film theatrically in China. That, of course, comes to us from Variety. Now, of course, to me, the Jordan Voight Roberts part of this story is great, but it's the Brian K Vaughn aspect that really catches your attention because it's not just Why the Last Man and it's not just Saga, which is amazing, by the way, if you haven't read Saga. It's not just The Runaways, which I, my wife was reading Runaways long before the show ever came out. I really like the show. I mean, Brian K Vaughn is kind of the man. <laughs> He's kind of the man. So having him attached to this is pretty damn impressive. One of the kind of surprising things of this to me, though, is that something like a Gundam, that's something you picture as being a major motion picture in a theater, like not a Netflix thing, so I don't know. They haven't really said in these reports what is the budget going to be on these things. You have to believe it's got to be something significant. But anyway, Rob, you have a chance to see this. Uh, what do you think about this news? And are you hyped for an idea of a mobile suit Gundam live action film coming to Netflix? What do you think?
1: Bruh, I've been a Gundam fan since uh, this Japanese uh, girl K. Morita moved to my hometown. When I was in junior high school and I was first introduced to Gundam by her, I love mobile suit Gundam. Love it. I, I have many Gundam models. I have many die cast Gundam figures. The, the, the show Gundam is really, if you go by the, there's a main continuity of Gundam and then there's all these offshoots and alternate universe stories and different versions, like wing Gundam. People have seen that was the first Gundam that was brought to America and dubbed into English. I love this franchise and at the core of this franchise is basically a message of, of anti war because it's, it's about revolution and it's about, um, people that live in space, colonists that live in our solar system that want to, well, the core, the core story is about, they want to break free. They want their independence. It's basically a, a, about a war between earth and the principality of Zeon. And I, it, it, I love it, so I can't even tell you how much I love this franchise. It's basically what Star Trek and Star Wars are to here, Gundam is to Japan. And to have this done correctly on such a grand scale, I mean, dude, I got all, let's just say, more excited than I probably should seeing the RX-78, classic RX-782 mobile suit in Ready Player One. For the fleeting moments it was in there, I'm like, oh man, someone's gotta do a live-action Gundam movie. Now look, it still requires great characterization. A lot of the Gundam shows live and die like many things with their characters. And I want to see great characters in a great story. In addition to seeing mobile suits battling in space, you know, um, as a matter of fact, one of the, uh, the great villains of the Gundam franchise is right here. Char. Woo. Yeah, the, the red comet. <laughs> and I want to see this character in live action. Let me tell you, because I love. I want to see the Sazabi, a uh, Xeon, uh, the Xeon um, uh, Galf or something. You know, one of my favorite mobile suits. But her, the Red Comet piloting his Sazabi. Bring it on. So I mean, this is this is significant
0: because I I can't remember the last time a streamer was going to take on for a live action adaptation like this of something this scale like something like a mobile suit Gundam I mean you're talking something on the scale of Transformers 42
1: years even older 42 years of history
0: well all that history but just thinking visually what what this thing needs to be right so you don't I I don't recall this ever happening before so I was a little bit surprised to hear about this and and seeing how well it's going to turn out it will be interesting to see what budget they set for this That will be very, very interesting to see. Do they go 200 million or do they go 75 million? Like, that's where do you think they're going to come in on this?
1: Well, first of all, you know, if they paid 400 plus million dollars for the rights of doing two Knives Out movies, I'm thinking Sunrise, the Japanese company that owns Gundam, one of the problems behind doing something like this is they wanted so much money for the rights. I mean, this is they have to be planning as this is their. This is their franchise. This is th- the same way that there's Lord of the Rings and Star Wars and the Marvel Cinematic Universe. This could be that for Netflix. This isn't like them doing Death Note or another anime adaptation. This has got to be they- – they've got to be thinking on a huge grand scale. So uh, $200 million minimum. I mean if they're going to spend $200 million for the Flower Moon movie that Scorsese is making – they have to be thinking this is a billion-dollar idea. I don't think the movie is going to cost a billion dollars, but their investment might cap a billion.
0: But can it – I mean, so here's a question. Like, first of all, the basic idea of the story, it's a little bit like Firefly. Of course, Gundam came first. But the idea of, is that, okay, so it's set in the future. For those of you who don't know anything about Gundam, it's set in the future. Humanity has expanded out amongst the stars. And now there's kind of like this Civil War fight for independence from Earth. Amongst these things, they develop these mobile suits called Gundams and blah, blah. But is Gundam a popular enough IP that it could be potentially that that paradigm shifting kind of major success does it have? Cause I know I was taking a quick glance at the live chat as we started talking about Gundam and a lot of people are saying, I've never even heard of Gundam. Like, do you think it has yeah. that potential?
1: Well, it, yeah, we, we are woefully misinformed in this country, uh, about what mobile suit Gundam is. There is, there's the model kits that are hugely popular gunpla, the, these, and they have many different formats of Gundams. But, uh, uh, again, it's just not well known here because it was hard. It was such the crown jewel of Japan. They didn't allow a lot of it to come into the United States. A lot of people have fond memories of Wing Gundam, but it's still very limited in terms of its reach here. This movie is going to have to be great. Mm. Uh, The pressure, I mean, having Brian Vaughn and having uh, Vaughn Roberts to direct it, at least we know he can deal with that kind of scale. But this story has got to be epic. I mean, they're going to have to make this in grand fashion. Otherwise, it'll be like every other – well, not every other, but I, – I mean, one of my favorite manga adaptations was uh, Edge of Tomorrow. All you need is kill. Live, die, repeat. That was really well done because you had Tom Cruise in it. I mean, I think this movie is going to need marquee names playing the main characters. There's such a rich history here, but it's so dense. They really need to uh, – I, I mean, this is a tall order, man, and the potential for failure is large, but I think it could be once people see it, this could be the kind of thing for television that people are going to be like, I I can't, I can't wait. This could be a game of Thrones type show if it's done correctly.
0: Well, it's a movie, right? It's, it's a, it's a stand, it's yeah. a movie, not a series. Yes. Yeah.
1: But, but I think that as a, they're going to have to think of it as a series because there's no way. You know the 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 show is so sprawling in its universe, and the the main the main storyline is set in what's called the Universal Century. Yeah, and there's been like I don't know twelve different Universal Century shows that all detail this struggle. I mean, it's dense, man. And if they don't do it right, it's gonna be a failure. But I'm excited. I'm
0: really excited. Oh, I knew you would be. Questions for you guys. Are you excited about this? Maybe you don't care about Gundam. Maybe you're like, is that something my grandfather used to watch? Or what? I mean, I don't know. How do you guys feel about this news? And how do you feel about the addition of the director from uh, Kong Skull Island? Jump on down to the comment section below and let us know your thoughts. All right, guys. With that down, let's move on to main topic number two. And our second main topic today gets submitted to us by Black Adam, who writes, Hey, John and Rob, what do you guys think of Lucy Liu's casting for Shazam 2? Supposedly playing sisters with Helen Mirren's villain character, this cast, as well as the cast of Black Adam, has got me really excited. When Zach Levi's Shazam eventually throws down against Dwayne Johnson's Black Adam. All right, thanks for sending that in. And yeah, you guys know I, I more than most people, loved Shazam. I, lo- I thought it was so charming, and so fun, and so. Entertaining, and I just loved it. I ate up every. I damn it, I even love the foster parents, the two foster parents in that movie. Do a spin off movie of them, I'll watch it. I personally think it's the second best DCEU movie, only behind The Great Man of Steel. I, I just like it that much. Not many people like it as much as I do, but I do like it that much. So I've been very excited about them rolling on a second one. Of course, the other day they announced that the immortal Helen Mirren was going to come on as one of the villains of the thing, which is, of course, great. But now we've got more news on one of my other favorite actresses. Lucy Liu is joining us. This comes to us from The Hollywood Reporter who writes, Lucy Liu, who has spent the last several years in television with such shows as Why Women Kill and Elementary, is heading to the big screen, joining the cast of of New Line's big-budget DC movie, Shazam! Fury of the Gods. New Line announced that Liu will play a villainess named Calypso. The character is the second daughter of Atlas, one of the Titans of ancient Greece, and one of the A's in Shazam, acronym of the ancient gods and heroes. The character is also the sister, Tesperia, the villain character that is being played by the already cast, Helen Mirren. So we're going to have Helen Mirren and Lucy Lou playing villain sisters. I'm all about it. I'm all about, I've always liked Lucy Liu, like going all the way back, like not just Kill Bill and and not just like Charlie's Angels. I've just always liked Lucy Liu. I've always found her really, even her earlier television work in, was it, um, it was Ally McBeal she was in, right? It was, I think it was, yeah, that was Ally McBeal where I first noticed her. I loved her in that. Um, I'm a big fan of Lucy Liu. Now I've never watched Elementary I know that Sean's show's been on for about 47 years. I've never watched an episode of it, but I've always wanted to watch it just because Lucy Liu is in it and I like Sherlock Holmes. So maybe I should check that one out. But I do like the news of this very, very much. And again, pairing her and Hellamirin together, Rob, I think is magic. I <laughs> think it's absolutely uh, magic. So too, I'm excited sir. about it. What do you think about the uh, Lucy Liu casting here?
1: Well, I, I'm a huge fan of Lucy Liu. I mean, I, and I, I, I mean, come on. She was so great. And, and uh, Kill Bill is over in Ishii. I love that. I just, I love, I, I don't know. There's something about her that I've always really enjoyed her voice, the way she looks, the way she moves. And the fact that she's a villain in this movie, I, I'm sure with either superpowers or powers or something, bring it on, dude. Like you said, Helen Mirren and Lucy Liu. What a, what an interesting pairing uh i I'm there for that. I can't wait,
0: yeah, I mean, I think she's gonna be able to do great with the action as well i uh and again you, you look at this cast first of all, I just love the original cast, and now you've added Hellomere and Lucy Liu. This is fantastic, I mean, of course, again, like everything else, the movie might end up being completely terrible and again, it's a lot of people though Rob you know Black Adam who wrote this in. A lot of people are waiting for when are we going to hear about Black Adam? Because Black Adam just started shooting. It's now official. They are rolling cameras as we speak. That movie is being shot. We've got Shazam 2 is getting ready to go into production here shortly. When are we finally going to see Black Adam and Shazam on the screen together? I think we'll probably get a much better picture of that moving forward. The question is for you guys. What do you think about the casting of Lucy Liu as one of the villains, a sister to Helen Mirren in the new Shazam film? I think it sounds great. What do you guys think about it? Jump on down to the comment section below and let us know your thoughts. Okay, guys. With that down, let's move on to our third and final main topic today. And this is not a happy one. Uh, This one comes to us from Jeff Bingham. And Jeff Bingham writes... The pandemic has claimed yet another victim, despite being in the recovery phase. It has just been announced that Arclight Cinemas and Pacific Theaters, which combined have over 300 screens between these two, they're owned by the same parent company, are closing down for good. I believe the hope and expectations that someone else will take the Cinerama Dome since it is a prime theatrical uh, staple in Hollywood, but it's disheartening news to hear nonetheless. I don't live in Hollywood, but I managed to see a movie at the Dome once in a while, uh, once when I visited it. I sure hope it reopens. Um, There's no other way to... I was... Rob, it was uh, late yesterday afternoon. I had this news fire across my newsfeed that the arc light cinema's which if you don't live in LA or in the LA or southern california area the name arc light may not mean a lot to you it is the theater when not going to a own that like quentin tarantino goes to it is the theater that all most of the hollywood people all go to it is like a staple of los angeles the ep- the epicenter of movie going it is the epicenter within the epicenter. The ArcLight Theater is the it is the the movie theater in Hollywood itself, and then of course the iconic imagery of the Cinerama Dome, Rob. I mean, this was highlighted in uh, Quentin Tarantino's latest movie. Yep. In Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, they the opening of Entourage, the opening credits of Entourage, the opening sequence of Entourage always focused right in on the Cinerama Dome Theater. And, of course, the attached Arclight Theatres, which is one of the best movie-going experiences in L.A. On top of that, they also the same company owns the Pacific Theatres. Now, Arclight has several locations. Pacific Theater has a lot of locations. Grant told they have over 300 screens. And, like, if you're a, a film journalist, like, you know, I pretend to be, like, 25%, like, one out of every four press screenings were held at the Pacific Grove. The Grove Pacific Theater. That's where like one out of every four press screenings I've ever been to has been there. About one out of every, maybe like 40% of all the press screenings I've ever gone to have been at this movie theater, at the Arc Light Cinemas. Like a good 70% of all of the press of the press screening theaters are now gone. There's 300 screens. And Rob, it when the news, you know, you and I got on the phone as soon as the news broke and you and I talked about this, It shocked me. Now, it wouldn't have shocked me if three months ago this news came out. If this news came out three months ago, I wouldn't have been shocked. But now, as we seem, as the the person who sent the question is suggesting, we are in this recovery phase, Godzilla versus Kong, but those theaters, the Arc Lights and the Pacific theaters, never reopened. Anyway, this comes to us from the folks over at The Hollywood Reporter who write, Uh, This was not the outcome anybody wanted. This is, of course, from somebody at the company. This was not the outcome anybody wanted, but despite a huge effort that exhausted all potential options, the company does not have a viable way forward, said the statement issued by Pacific Theaters, which is owned by Decurion Corporation, which also owns Arclight. No Arclight or Pacific location has reopened since the pandemic began. On Monday afternoon, word quickly spread across Hollywood that they will remain dark for good. And according to the stories, beyond just that, it says they've already turned in the keys to the landlords of all the theaters. They've already terminated their leases. They've handed in their keys. That these things have now gone dark. I guess the amount of debt they've accumulated, uh, they just ran out of options. And even though they're right at the precipice of things restarting, it was just too late. It was too far gone. Uh, And there was nothing else that they could do. Again, it is difficult for people who don't live in L.A. to understand the cultural significance of the closing of not just the Arclight, but also of Pacific theaters as well. This is huge. This is absolutely huge. And Rob, it brings into question, here we are at the beginning of the recovery, and this is when they shut down, are other theaters maybe in more precarious positions that we may now think as we think we see stock prices rising for AMC, Regal. We see all these stock prices rising. People are coming back to the theaters, but maybe they were already past the point of no return and maybe it's just inevitable that they closed down too. Rob, I know you were almost in tears over this. This Arclight Theater is your favorite place to go see movies. Uh, your It is now the latest victim of the pandemic. Your thoughts on the closing of Arclight and Pacific theaters. How do you see this?
1: Well, I honestly, I'm stunned. I mean, I uh, my uncle used to be president of Pacific theaters. He's retired now. But the I, I can't believe that this has happened, because not only what people don't understand is Pacific theaters in the Arclight, uh, uh, the Pacific theaters are in major our major outdoor mall complexes here, the Americana, the Grove, and these are some of the most heavily trafficked, busy places in L.A. The Cinerama Theater, which is my favorite theater, I grew up, there's a Cinerama in Seattle that Paul Allen bought and refurbished. That has been closed for the last year, and it's being closed for the foreseeable future. So I've literally grown up going to the Cinerama. And moving to L.A., my favorite place to go see movies was always the Cinerama. In 2015, it has a giant curved screen. They added laser projection Right before The Force Awakens was showing there because because the curved screen, sometimes light from one side of the screen would would shine out over the rest of the screen. So it sometimes it wasn't as bright. They fixed that with the laser projection uh, going in there, being under the this geodesic dome. And it, it, to me, it was it was a holy place. And then the rest of the Arclight Theater chain, especially there in Hollywood, had great projection, great food. There was a great restaurant and bar there. I mean, I can't tell you, I've seen hundreds of movies there since I've lived in Los Angeles. I I met Martin Landau once. I had a long conversation with him after we had both seen Apocalypse Now at a 70 millimeter screening in the Dome. I mean, I have so many memories of running into filmmakers and conversations I've had there. And, you know, I would go see virtually every major tentpole that got released. They always had previous screenings on Thursday nights like at seven o'clock or eight o'clock, we'd go there and get dinner and drinks and then we'd go see the movie. And I, I just, I can't believe this has happened. And especially to a, it is our, it's obviously the Arclight costs a little bit more. I'm an Arclight member. Um, I, I I just can't, I, I mean, I understand the pandemic. They haven't been able to make money and they have a huge overhead. I get it. It's academic, but I'm really surprised that, it was allowed to go this far? I mean, these are, what about the real estate companies that own the Grove and the Americana? And, and I just, I can't believe that they would have allowed this to happen because especially in Hollywood, other than the Chinese, this was a huge, vibrant retail area right by Cahuenga. There's, there's new housing that's gone in there. I mean, this anchored so many other businesses in the area. I just, I can't believe it. I can't believe it, John. I'm I'm depressed. And also, we have an ArcLight 10 minutes away from here. I can walk there in Pasadena here. That's also shut down. So the two major theaters that I frequented in the city are gone. Like, gone. Where am I going to— Honestly, there's other places to go see movies where the Burbank 16, but, you know, it's not the same.
0: Yeah, and, and look, there's, there's a little bit of a misconception going around, too. Like, some people— are misunderstanding the situation and they're saying things like, oh, you know, going into bankruptcy doesn't necessarily mean the end. That's true. Um, Alamo Drafthouse has gone into bankruptcy, but they're not going anywhere. They've gone into and they filed for bankruptcy protection so they can reorganize their debt, get things settled, and they're going to continue on doing business. This is not the company declaring bankruptcy. This is them saying, we are closed, we're, We're out. we've shut the doors. We're done. We're out. This is not bankruptcy. This is them saying we are shutting our business down. And those are two different things. Now, the other thing to keep in mind here is this is that there is some feeling amongst people that this is some kind of the whole idea that they've already turned in their keys to their landlords and stuff like that, that this is a power move to try to negotiate better terms to keep them around. I don't think that's true. I don't think you announced to the world that we have, we have shut down business, but that's, that's a possibility some people are floating. The other thing is, this: a lot of these theaters will probably still function as movie theaters. They will probably just be taken over by other chains. And there are many chains in just in the Los Angeles area alone, and then the greater Los Angeles area, that could step in and take over these theaters. Whether it's a Cinemark, or whether it's a Landmark, or whether it's an AMC, or whether it's a Regal, or whether it's another player, these theaters probably will be taken over. I, I just can't believe Cinerama is not going to be a movie theater anymore. Los an- its a protected Los Angeles landmark. Somebody will come in and operate it as a theater. I believe that will happen. It's also important to keep something else in mind. That these places did not close down because there aren't people going to the movies. Oh, no, these places were very profitable. They were always... This particular location is one of always in the top 10 busiest movie theaters in North America. This is a direct result of the pandemic. You know, I've lost count how many restaurants... Some of my favorites, Rob, have been shut down permanently because of the pandemic. It wasn't because people don't go to restaurants anymore. It was because the pandemic came along and killed them. And it's unfortunate, but that's what happened here. And with Godzilla versus Kong closing in on $400 million worldwide, people are still obviously want to go to the movies. So it's just, it's a terrible set of circumstances. Rob, what do you think is the best case scenario here? Like, I I think right now, Probably our best case scenario for these locations is that some other chain comes in, takes over the location. So the locations will still be there. But one of the things I love about different movie theater chains is that every movie theater chain you go to is its own different experience. Yes. Like, I love the experience at AMC, but I also love when I get to go to a Regal Theater. It's kind of like a different kind of movie-going experience. When I go to one of the landmark theaters that are here in Los Angeles, totally different kind of experience, more intimate and kind of relaxed. Um, When you go to a – and when you would go to Arclight, that whole place just felt like an airport. You know, you had the giant time boards Had the restaurants there and yeah. bars there. And then people would go in wonderful seating arrangement for it. Good distance. Like this was one of the theaters. You guys have to get this. What in any movie theater, you go in the front seat. The front row is the neckbreaker seat, right? Not in the arc light cinemas. No. In the arc light cinemas, the front row was still like 20 feet from the screen. I mean, every single seat was the best seat in the house. They would start off every presentation. It's a little thing, but I loved it. Before a movie would start, a staff member would come in, say, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for coming to the Arclight Theaters. You are about to watch, you know, Groundhog Day with Bill Murray. It was directed by so-and-so. It has a running time, of blah, blah, blah. If for whatever reason, they would always say, the sound or picture quality is not up to our high standards. Please come out of the theater and grab one of our staff members, and we will correct the problem. Please stay silent, keep your phones off, and enjoy the show. I mean, it's just it's just little things like that that made their experience unique, and I really enjoyed. Uh, Rob, what are you going to miss most about like ArcLight theaters and and Pacific and things like that?
1: Well, for me, the ArcLight cinemas were the professional movie theaters of Los Angeles. It's where all the professionals that work in the business go to see movies because, one, they don't tolerate people talking. They show three trailers and that's it. There's oh, no Oh, that's that's a
0: great one, too. I forgot about that. You're right. They had a rule. Three trailers, no more. None of this 25 minutes of trailer no. bullshit. It was no. three trailers into the movie. I loved that.
1: I mean, it was. it's very much an upscale experience. And because the cost was a little bit more, I mean, not to be elitist, but – you know, no one tolerated people talking or putting up their turning, taking their cell phones out and people who would do those things tended not to go to the arc light theaters. They would go somewhere else. So there was a, there was a sense of decorum that surrounded the arc light that was, and it was, it was, it was very much an upscale experience and an upscale experience, not to be snooty or elitist, but what it did was serve the movies. If you went to an Arc Light, it meant that you were a real die-hard, dedicated film goer that didn't want to put up with any. I mean, you were serious about movies. And that's why especially the the Hollywood uh, location where the Cinerama Dome was, it really did cater to the film industry. So it, it, there was frequently you frequently saw stars and filmmakers and and no one bothered them because that was the environment that they fostered there. And I think, you know, it, it diminishes. And even when you would go to the Pacific Theaters at the Americana or at the um, at the Grove, those were also great theaters that offered great sound and projection in big auditoriums, and they cared about the movie theater experience. And I think for Los Angeles to lose what I think is their most upscale, sure, AMC did a great job with their Dolby Cinemas, but still, the rest of it, it was like you never know if you're going to get a gaggle of teenage girls that were going to be texting a whole, during a whole movie. You didn't in the Dolby cinema, but with the Arclight, you knew that you could get great food, you could get drinks. It was very much an adult movie going experience and I'm going to miss it.
0: I'm going to miss it too. Again, like I said, we will probably see most of these locations will be taken over by other movie theaters and they will still probably function. But it's just we lost one of those unique voices in the theater industry that just gave us yet another unique experience. Anyway, question is for you guys. Uh, I'd be interested to know, do you live in the Southern California area or outside? And then what's your perspective on this whole thing? It's a real loss. This is 300 screens of that were unique voices in the theatrical exhibition industry. I'm going to miss it. I'll tell you right now, my very first time I ever went to a movie in Los Angeles, when I came to Los Angeles for the first time, it was a special presentation screening in the Cinerama Dome of Tootsie with a Q&A afterwards with Dustin Hoffman, the writer, the director, and the producer. All of them were there to do a Q&A of the movie afterwards. It was one of my favorite Things I've ever gone to in a movie theater that was my first experience and now it is gone anyway guys what are your thoughts on this jump into the comment section below and leave your thoughts there okay guys with that down and out of the way let's move on now to our to our our main topic we just finished our main topics let's now move on to your Comments and questions that you guys want to send in, in the live questions. Once again, if you want if you want to send in a live question, simply use the tip link that's in the description of this video or you could enter it in manually at www.streammoments.com slash movieblogtv tip. You'll be getting your question or comment or question on the show if it's appropriate. And, of course, you'll be supporting the show at the same time. And don't forget, guys, if you were waiting for one to get answered, it might have been answered in our companion video yesterday that me and Kimberly Curran did. Make sure you go and check that out as well. Okay. Let's get into your question, shall we? And we're going to start things off here with the Wakandan forever who writes, "I never loved." Uh, I never loved Mickey. You realize that he's got three fingers. What am I, a bowling ball, Mrs. Doubtfire himself, Robin Williams? What is your favorite stand-up comedian? I still think Rodney Dangerfield for me. Uh, story of my life. I get no respect. I get asked that a lot lately, Rob. about who's my favorite comedian? And it's look, if I'm going to be honest, I can lie to avoid an awkward situation, but notwithstanding all the drama and everything we found out about the man over the last number of years, my all-time favorite comedian my whole life was the same as Chris Rock's all-time favorite comedian, Jerry Seinfeld's all-time favorite comedian. It was Bill Cosby. Bill Cosby was my number, like nobody ever touched him. No one came close. Richard Pryor, guys like that. But you know, when you hear Chris Rock and, and Rod and, uh, and Jerry Seinfeld talking about Bill Cosby, his stand-up comedy, his stand-up comedy concert, Bill Cosby himself, to this day, I think is the funniest stand-up comedy (laughs) concert I've ever seen, but I can't watch it again. Like now that I, what I know, what we know about the man, I can't watch it again. But if I'm going to be honest, the guy who was my favorite stand-up comedian of all time was him. Now, of course, today we got a lot of great ones today. I still love Stephen Wright. Nobody talks about Stephen Wright anymore. The master of the deadpan one-liners. I love Stephen Wright. Um, Chris Rock is a great stand-up comedian. Uh, obviously, Dave Chappelle's fantastic, but yeah, my all-time favorite was Bill Cosby. What was your all-time favorite comedian, Rob?
1: God, that's hard. I have to say, I'm going to go back even further because I grew up with I grew up as a kid listening to Lenny Bruce. Oh wow! You know? and, and oh, that's why I love marvelous Mrs. Maisel so much because uh, because. um, He's a character in Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, but I, you know, I, I love stand-up comedy, and I did love, I did love uh, Bill Cosby, and like, there's a group called the Firesign Theater, and I loved the, the uh, people like that. I loved Richard Pryor, yeah. you know, and um, Live on
0: the Sunset Strip. I was way too young. I was way too young to watch it on a VHS tape, but Live on the Sunset Strip is one of the first comedy concert movies I ever watched, and I still remember. I went and saw day.
1: Sam Kinison. You know. Oh, uh, wow. I innocent Live. Yeah. I, and I, I love stand up comedy, but it's it's that was the Bill Cosby thing was rough to deal with. Yeah. You know, yeah, it really was terms with that.
0: All right. Next up. We go to Raj who writes, Hey, John, a quote. Oh, my soul, let me be uh, let me be in you now. Look out through my eyes. Look out at the things you made, all the shining things. The Thin Red Line is one of my favorite war movies. Uh, its metaphysicality metaphys- was just overwhelming thoughts. Th- the Thin Red Line, which, by the way, you had names like uh, George Clooney. You had, um, oh, I'm t- there's a whole bunch of people in it. E- even, um, uh, who's playing Venom now again? Um, uh He's playing, not Venom, he's playing... Uh, Woody Harrelson. Woody Harrelson, Cardiff. thank you. So you had g- guys like George Clooney, Woody Harrelson, stuff like that. The thing is Thin Red Line, I believe it came out after movies like Platoon, movies like, um, what was the other big one that came out after, Full Metal Jacket. I think Thin Red Line like came after that. And so some people kind of never gave it the time of day. I really like Thin Red Line. Myself. I know, Rob, did you, did you ever see Thin Red Line? If so, what do you think of it when you... Yeah, uh, no, I, I,
1: have, I have it on Blu-ray. It, it's a beautiful film, but, you know, like all of Terrence Malick's movies, uh, it, it was... I, I think I saw George Clooney talking about this on the Graham Norton show, how it started out being Adrian Brody's movie. Adrian Brody, That's, Brody I thought... For, it, I
0: forgot Adrian Brody was an Oscar winner. Adrian yeah, Brody. It, Jim was Caviezel was in a it, too. Star.
1: And they basically keep... Malick, during editing, cut his role down to nothing. But... Um, You know, I I think it's I don't think it's as effective as other war movies, but it certainly is beautiful and moving. But it's it's certainly worth watching. I mean, it's a beautifully done film. All right. Next up, we've got a Suthius who writes.
0: "Um, And by the way, T. Benson sends in like a twenty dollar super chat badge in the live chat. Thank you, T. Benson. Appreciate that, man. Very much. Thank you for the support. All right. Suthius writes "Uh, like Thor in Endgame or Bruce in the beginning of The Dark Knight Rises. We can usually tell what sort of mental state a character is in by their physical appearance. When John was introduced as the new captain America, he was all neat and clean, uh, clean shaven. Uh, Steve was like this every time he donned the suit, which told me he was always ready to tackle the day until he didn't care anymore. After his civil war episode four shows John kind of grizzled with his stubble. This tells me he's had enough of it up until this point. Well, first of all, Suthius That's a good observation. But that is not just something that's in comic book movies. Like, the the whole idea of filmmaking of show, don't tell, a lot of times filmmakers will use the physical appearance of a character to kind of visually communicate where they are at mentally, right? That's always been a big tool of it. And yeah, they absolutely have used that in the comic book movies. Of course, Fat Thor is one of the most obvious overt expressions of that. Uh, telling us where Thor's at mentally by his physical appearance. But that has been a tool that's been used in a lot of movies a lot of times. So yes, when we come to episode four and we now see John Walker in Falcon and Winter Soldier, now he's got the stubble. He looks like not as clean, stuff like that. It expresses to us visually as the audience where this character is at mentally. And it's a, it's a standard filmmaking trick, but when you do it right, it's very, very effective. And that's a good example of how it's been effective. All right, next up, we go to Caleb, who writes, saw today that Chris Terrio almost took his name off of the theatrical cut of Justice League, didn't know he could do that, and that only the WGA could make that decision. How does that work? Does he have to give back his salary? Please explain, John Rob. Okay, so Rob, I am not a member of the D- WGA, but I have a couple of friends of mine. I won't name who, and I won't name the movie in question. <laughs> I think you, you'll you know what I'm talking about, Rob. But probably I have a couple of friends who were very excited about making a particular movie. Uh, they wrote it and they were going to do certain things with it. The studio, I won't even mention which studio it was, uh, completely sabotaged what they were going to do. And my friends wanted their names taken off the movie. They ultimately did. Now, remember, I'm saying this you know, from a a third degree perspective, I wasn't the one involved. I'm just giving you this secondhand information. And so I don't fully understand it, but they wanted to get their names taken off it. However, were they to do that, they wouldn't get the bonuses and money and residuals that would become associated with the fact that they are the credited writers. And so they were like, fine, keep our names on it. Because if you want to take your name off, that's cool. But if you're not the writer of record, Then whatever bonuses, whatever um, um, incentives, whatever residuals that go towards the writer of record, you don't get that. And so they ultimately kept it on. Now, that's really my full extent of that understanding. Anyway, Rob... Uh, you're a little bit more closely connected to this sort of situation. How does that work? If a writer literally wants their name removed from credit, I got to assume they can do that if they want that. But what are the ramifications, as you understand it?
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't know exactly what the D, the WGA, the Writers Guild of America would say about that. Um, but I, I'm sure it can be done. Obviously, the DGA has their Alan Smithy credit, which I don't. I think they've retired, but. I think, like you said, there's huge ramifications as to residuals and making money. And also, look, if the movie's so bad, this might not happen. But what if you what if you were the creator of something and they wanted to make a sequel? You know, I don't know how that works. Maybe contractually you'll still get your money. I would imagine you would, but maybe not. I don't know how that would work. I really don't. But now I'm curious. I want to look into that. I want to look into the WGA bylaws and. Find out what happens if you want your name removed.
0: All right. Uh, next up, great question, Caleb. Next up, Kenna writes, "I love the Wakandan scene in Friday's episode. It helps show the weight of Bucky's freedom. Contrast that with the scene in the first-ish episode where the psych was saying you're free, and Bucky asked to do what? After seven years, Bucky's still dealing with a lot. No, you're right. That juxtaposition in the show was great because you see, learning he's free, joy, happiness, overwhelmed with emotion." But then we think back to episode one and he's like, okay, I've now been dealing with this freedom for a while. I'm free to do what? And it was just, they, Rob, they've done such a good job with this Bucky character in this show. Like they really have, again, I still think maybe my favorite moment of Falcon and Winter Soldier and the thing that tells us more about the soul of Bucky Barnes was that scene when you know he's yelling at at Sam and saying well cap maybe S- steve was wrong about you and if he was wrong about you then that means he was wrong about me and that's and that was so significant because to bucky that's the only thing that he holds on to he doesn't believe in himself he doesn't have a lot of sense of self-worth he feels overwhelming guilt all the time but the one thing he has to hold on to is that steve rogers believed in me that's it yeah and so you could hear the 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 it, as as Sebastian Stan was saying that line, you could hear the emotion breaking in his voice. And if Steve was wrong about you, that means he was wrong about me. And it's like this tidal wave, like the meaning of that was so powerful to me watching that as a character. I thought that was brilliant. Anyway, How have you felt about the way they've handled Bucky in this series so far?
1: Dude, I think it's great. You know, you're watching a transition. I'm I, i I'm curious as how they're going to get back to that because he was clearly haunted and he has his list of people that he had to atone to. And I'm wondering that if this experience, you know, is he going to come clean at the end about killing that man's son, you know, his friend's son? And how is this going to change Bucky? I mean, we're seeing a real arc in his character. And I think in the sense that, the whole situation about what Steve Rogers legacy, he is that legacy. So is Sam. And there, that that's what this really is all about. What, what is the legacy of captain America? What does it mean to them personally? What does it mean to the country? What does it mean to the Avengers? What does it mean to the world? And I think we saw at the end of the last episode, it's irrevocably been irrevocably been tarnished by what happened on social media. I can't even imagine where this is going to go in episode five, but, but someplace pretty damn dark. So how are they going to restore that luster? Are they going to spend the rest of their lives, you know, trying to live up to the ideals that Steve Rogers set for not only them, but the world. I mean, this is why the show John resonates with me because it's about so many different things, not your typical comic book movie fair. As much as I like the MCU, this show is really going places that have surprised me first uh, uh, and foremost that being at the end of what seeing that bloody shield in, in so John powerful. Walker's hands, dude. So powerful.
0: Uh, by the way, uh, insomniac sends in a super chat badge in the live chat. Thank you. Insomniac. Appreciate that, man. All right. Uh, next up, We've got uh, Kenna, who also writes in. Hey, John. Speaking of the Dora Milaje, knowing that they're trained to protect a king who, at some point in time, had the powers of the Black Panther, they're trained to take down superpowered enemies. Well, I mean, it's, uh, that's fine and everything. You can say you're trained to take down superpowered enemies. That's great. What is a superpowered enemy? And you're still at the end of the day just a human being. Like, I don't care how much you train to take down Thanos, you're going to die. I don't care how much you train to take down, you know, I don't know, Loki. If you're a regular human being, you're going to die. Um, so, I mean, that's true. But, no, well, listen, the Dora Milaje. Rob, I put this up on Twitter yesterday. Looking back at that saying, when John Walker says to Io, you don't have jurisdiction here. And she says, the Dora Milaje have jurisdiction wherever the Dora Milaje find themselves to be. I'm yeah. by- like, <laughs> i'm like are you effing kidding me that was awesome i and i put up on twitter last night that i accidentally pulled out my headphone jack there i i i put up on twitter last night and said it's so weird that i want to get that tattooed on me somewhere just the way she said that the door of melaje have jurisdiction wherever the door melaje find themselves to be I'm like that is like sit down junior uh i loved it i totally did okay anyway uh next up the Wakanda Forever writes, Hey John, I know you play guitar and used to play in bands. Did you ever seriously think about pursuing music for a living? I did. Uh paid gigs, clubs, or make an album, that sort of thing. P.S. Uh, if you can play one venue in your life, what you would you want it to be? Well, listen, I yeah, I did. I I very seriously considered, do I try to pursue music as a career? Right up till I was like 19 or 20. I seriously thought about that. We, you know, we recorded, you know, my, one of my bands could record an album. We did a lot of recording. I did play a number of paid gigs, things like that. And it was around 19 or 20 that I realized I, I had to make a decision if I was really going to go for it. And I had to have a very honest conversation with myself. And I don't regret it. It was a very accurate, honest conversation with myself. And that honest, accurate conversation was with myself was, you're not good enough. And I'm okay with that. Like, I, I'm, I was pretty good. I was pretty good. But I did not... You know, when I would look around at some of my other friends and people I knew, and, and I just saw you know, their talent levels for this stuff were well beyond mine. And I just realized... And again, you know, and I'm sure everybody who grows up and dreams of being a professional football player or whatever, 99 out of 100 at some point have to have that conversation. I'm not quite good enough to actually be able to go to that level. And while I loved music and I continue to love music and I still pick up my guitar and play piano and stuff like that, I was, I just realized I'm not good enough to actually make it doing this. I'm not that good. I just really love it. I just really enjoy it. So. Yeah, that was it. And I think a lot of, I think almost everybody at some point has to have that conversation with themselves. And I had to have that conversation with myself that, hey, I love doing this, but I am not good enough at this. I don't have that special level of talent that a lot of other people do. And so it just became something I really enjoyed for the rest of my life, but never a career. Anyway, thanks Mm. for asking that, man. Okay. Uh, Next up, we got, uh, I look like Wyatt Russell writes. Uh, John, big fan here Thank you, dude Uh, Did you notice that the guy John Walker killed Said he was a major fan of Captain America We talked about that several times already Yeah, just imagine that gut punch To know you were killed by your idol as a kid You know, when we were doing The open spoiler discussion uh, Part one of this recent episode Somebody in the I totally missed that But somebody in the live chat brought it up And like, oh my god, yeah That guy was just talking to Carly About how Captain America was his hero And that shield means something, and then he's murdered by that shield, and the final shot is his blood on the shield. Powerful, powerful stuff, man. Powerful, powerful stuff. All right, next up. My theory is right, (laughs) right. John, you've heard it here first. All those crazy WandaVision fan theorists are now going to theorize that Wolverine is the power broker. He took the serum in Logan, so he wants more serum. Wolverine's the power broker. I just solved the case. Well, Rob, I'll tell you this. I, I don't hear anybody saying Wolverine is the power broker, but I didn't hear the crazy X-Men are coming in to Falcon and Winter Soldier theories after the first episode. It's like, okay, we've all learned our lesson. Right. And then I didn't hear any X-Men are coming into Falcon and Winter Soldier theories after the second episode. I'm like, okay, we all learned our lesson. But Rob, since episode three and after episode four, I am starting to see a few. And we're going to see this X-Men character pop. We're starting to see that again. I, I feel very confident, although I do not know for sure. But I think I feel fairly safe in saying, no, we are not going to see X-Men characters in this. Rob, where are you on that right now?
1: Well, I, too, was joking because, you know, Madripoor was a, a big location yes. in the yes, Wolverine comic book. So I figured, you know, that would make sense. Clearly, they're name checking. They have Madripoor in there to draw that connection. It's a definitely a, a big city in the Marvel in the Marvel universe, the comic universe. But I don't think that they would introduce a character like Wolverine in this way. Too big of a character. Um. What about a you know, minor
0: I mean, X-Men character? Do you think that – like like do you think they could be – when I say minor character, I, I mean one that is still definitively identified as an X-Man character. Do you think they'd even do that in here? I don't think so, but do you think they I could don't do that?
1: Thi- I don't think so either because then that would overshadow the series as a whole. Then people – that's all anybody would talk about. I think that – um, I think that uh, – I, I, I mean, maybe Sharon Carter gets revealed to be the power broker. I don't know. You know, I mean. I'm, I'm
0: still on that, by the way. Like, listen, people hear me say that, you know, if you had to guess who the power broker is right now, my guess is Sharon Carter. There are several pieces of information that would suggest otherwise. But I don't really think Sharon Carter's the power broker. It's just that I have yet to hear a better theory. That That's the only thing. I'm saying out of all the bad theories We've we have and that we've heard Sharon Carter as power broker is still a bad theory, but it's the least bad of the bad theories.
1: You know what right.
0: I mean? I don't know. Have you heard a, th- a theory that's that's better than the Sharon Carter one right now?
1: Not really. I mean, you know, you know everybody's been talking about the power broker is a, a character in the comics, but not one that we would recognize. So I I you know I don't know. Maybe we'll never see the power broker and they'll leave that for another day.
0: All right, next up, we've got Optimus Prime Rib who writes, I'm writing it or I'm willing it into existence. This is the year of the lovable losers. Your Maple Leafs and my Clippers will make history. Uh, What better way to celebrate 2021 after such a tough year of many? Well, I hate to break it to you, Optimus Prime Rib. I doubt both. Um, I I do not think that this Leafs team is the best Leafs team in decades. But I just don't see them being built for the grueling um, NHL playoffs. I, I, I don't see them being built to, to withstand the playoffs and get to the Stanley Cup. So there's that. Clippers aren't getting out of the West. I, I'm, I'm sorry. But I don't even think they would be in my top three picks to make it out of the West. Honestly, I, I think they can't beat the Jazz. I think you put them in a series against the Jazz, they can't beat them. I certainly don't think they can beat the Lakers at full strength, like once AD and LeBron and everything are back. I mean, hell, they just, I mean, uh, yeah. So I don't know. I I always down deep kind of root for the Clippers, and I'm obviously a huge Leafs fan, but I don't think it's going to happen for either of us this year, dude. I hope I'm wrong. I totally hope I'm wrong, but I don't think it's going to happen for us this year. All right, next up, Uh, Jay Bling writes, Watching your Gladiator recap reminded me of Hans Zimmer's track Elysium which plays when Maximus dies. If I save the world or universe but end up mortally wounded in the process, I want that to I want that track to play in the background as I die. Thanks for bringing that up Jay Blink. And Rob, you know I just did this movies in 20 video about yeah. Gladiator. But I'm telling you dude, out of all the badass things in that movie you know, so many badass things, you know, and I will have my vengeance in this life or the next or whatever it is. Right. To me, there's something chest thumping about when the senator walks up to, you know, uh, Russell Crowe's now died. And the senator walks up to him in the middle of the Coliseum and he just says, who shall help me? Ca- who shall help me yeah. carry his body? And then all like the Gladiators and Quintus and all these guys step forward. They lift up Maximus's body and care for the ring as they leave Caesar's body to rot in the sun. And like I'm just like that image that Ridley Scott composed for us to enjoy, one of my favorite moments. And that music
1: is such a key part. Like, what do you think of when you think back to the music of Gladiator? Oh, my God. And Lisa Gerard from Dead Can Dance doing her her wailing yeah, over that stuff. Yeah, just, yep. uh, I yeah. I mean, I, uh, I'm, I love that score. I love that film. As a matter of fact, it's supposed to be delivered today, a third-party Maximus figure, 12-inch Ooh, Maximus. Ooh,
0: that's figure. right. You told me about that. I can't wait to yeah, see that.
1: Yeah, It was supposed to come yesterday, but like UPS wants a signature. I'm like, I was on your show when they tried to deliver it. Oh, like, come guys, on. Guys, <laughs> just leave it at the damn door, would you? All right. Thanks. I can't wait to see that one. All right, next up,
0: uh, Wakanda Forever writes, Woo, WrestleMania is about to start. This, of course, was on Sunday. Uh, start, John. What's your favorite WrestleMania match? Uh, mine growing up, Ultimate Warrior, Hulk Hogan, WrestleMania six, two-night event. Uh, it's boss time. Have fun. I write in when it's all over to get your thoughts. The reality, honestly, I used to watch wrestling a lot when I was a kid. I will still watch wrestling once in a while, but I will always watch WrestleMania. I will always watch WrestleMania and one of the like, whether it's Royal Rumble or SummerSlam, I'll watch one or two of the other major ones, though. I did not watch WrestleMania this year. Not because I didn't want to, but because Saturday I was out of town. So Saturday I couldn't watch this, the first part of WrestleMania. And then Sunday, totally planned on watching WrestleMania. But then in the morning, I got this unexpected text message from Cody Miller who I haven't, because of COVID and everything, he lives in Indiana, I haven't seen him in over a year, and he was like, hey, I'm flying into Los Angeles right now for a photo shoot, and I'm free after 2 p.m., do you want to hang out? And I was like, well, I'm not going to not hang out with Cody. And so I never, I just didn't watch WrestleMania. Now, as far as my all-time favorite WrestleMania match, it probably still has to be And I can't remember if it was WrestleMania 3, but it's the Ricky the Dragon Steamboat versus Randy Macho Man Savage, which is one of the greatest wrestling matches of all time. I definitely put it in top five. Randy the Macho Man Savage versus Ricky the Dragon Steamboat, one of the all-time greatest matches and probably probably my favorite WrestleMania one. That's probably my favorite WrestleMania one. All right, next up, we go to uh, DarkLock63, who writes, one of three, greetings, If Walker had executed the combatant without witnesses, the government could have covered it up. However executing a surrendering combatant uh, is a criminal act and soldiers have been brought up on charges for doing uh, such For doing such, some acquitted others found guilty this being fiction they may well give him a pass as much as we say as much as we may sympathize with Walker there are rules of engagement he has to follow in public anyway it also shows that we are not worthy uh, of the shield either SFC Reese US Army retired thank you so much uh, Dark lock for sending that in and you're absolutely right you are 100 right but as you also point out one's reality one is this fictitious world of falcon and the winter soldier the one of the big questions that's going is okay what is now the fallout of what just happened at the end of the last episode and my theory is this and it's only fan speculation i don't know that this is what they're going to do I think the U.S. government is going to back John Walker. I think they're going to spin it as John Walker brought to justice an international terrorist who blew up you know, a building with civilians in it and just murdered one of our U.S. federal agents, of course, Battlestar, and he brought him to justice after a fierce life-and-death battle. I think they're going to back him, which is only going to embolden him. Now, maybe they go the other way, and they should go the other way, but I, I don't know. I just have a feeling that that's what they're going to do. I But I don't know. I don't know. I it's, it's 60-40 to me right now. Rob, which way do you think that whole issue is going to go? Are they going to revoke him as Captain America? Or are they going to back him on it? I mean, how do you see this playing out?
1: No, I think I think they're going to back him on it. Because that's this, this, whole, this whole show is really about shades of gray. And the fact is, it's not like he's some murderer. I mean, Battlestar was... I mean, he is now, but Battlestar was killed, you know, and these people have been killing civilians. We saw Carly or whatever, when they blew up that building, there were hostages they had put in there and they blew that building up, uh, killing innocents. So, and then they killed Battlestar. They kill an American soldier was killed. And I I think they can easily spin it that way, you know? And, and, and the thing is what it makes Walker then have to deal with what he knows was wrong. I mean right? his, if, if he cares his,
0: anymore now that the serum's in him, maybe he doesn't care. Maybe cause like at the end of that, as he's standing there with the shield and the blood on it, he looked proud. Like he didn't look ashamed. He when people pointing cameras, he didn't look worried. He's like, damn right, I just killed this fool.
1: He had he took vengeance on, I mean, his his man, his I mean, they probably had saved one another's lives countless times when they were deployed in places like Afghanistan who knew what was going on during the past five years during the blip you know and and they they were they were compatriots they they were they were warriors together there's a warrior code he was he was killed and John Walker's like these guys enough of them
0: yep they're gonna pay and uh, he killed he killed one of them all right next up Caleb writes John I think I've figured out the holy tetralogy of the most underrated actors working today. Danny Houston, fantastic. Jesse Plemons, fantastic. Ben Foster, maybe the best of the bunch. And Rufus Sewell, they all always deliver but are overshadowed. What do you think of them and who is your favorite of these? Well, these are all basically character actors. None of them are like the leading the leading men. They're all character actors, but they're all fantastic. When I think of Danny Houston, Rob, I, I want to play this game with you on this. We're gonna play movie association. All right. I'll go first. And then I want to you. When I think of Danny Houston, maybe not his best one, maybe not the most popular one. I will always think of Thirty Days of Night as he played one of the vampires in Thirty oh. Days of Night. I
1: loved him in that. Oh Just, that's you that, know that's a good one. Th- that's
0: a good one. Jesse Plemons, and I might even be wrong. I might be guess I might begin this wrong, but Jesse Plemons as the neighbor in game night. It's like, game night? I'm like, yeah. Yeah, I loved him as that neighbor in game night. Ben Foster might be the best actor in the world today who is not considered A-list, who's not considered one of the top actors. You know what I mean? Maybe the most underrated actor in the business. This guy, uh, the movie I think of him whenever I think of Ben Foster is 310 to Yuma. This is a movie that he was starring in alongside Russell Crowe and Christian Bale. Two of the greatest actors in the world, and to me, he stood them both up. He he upstaged both of them in that. I thought he was incredible. So that's what I think of when I think of Ben Foster. Rufus Sewell. Always the creepy villain guy. I go oh, I usually go back to a night's tale with Rufus Sewell. So that's my movie association. Rob, what about you? Let's 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 start off with uh, with the first one. Danny Houston.
1: Danny. You know what I this is gonna seem crazy, but children of men.
0: Because he plays
1: this this really wealthy guy who's saving all the world's great artworks, you know. And um, uh, I, 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 no, he's not crazy, but he's very upscale, and he he seems like he's the one man that's trying to save, retain civilization, kind of a thing.
0: Right. Okay. Let's move on to Jesse Plemons. What do you think of when you think of Jesse Plemons,
1: dude? Friday Night Lights. Oh, of course, yeah, of course. I, I, I mean, you'd say Friday Night, Night. You know, I, I, there's nothing else. I, what can I say? You know. Um, All right. What
0: about Ben Foster?
1: Hell or high water.
0: Yeah, yeah. You you know, so good.
1: Hell or high water. I loved him. That. But then I can't say that I don't think of him as Angel in X Men Three. Well, you know, yeah, of course. That's not and good. and by the <laughs> way,
0: Ben Foster just, I was mentioning Danny Houston 30 Days of Night. Ben Foster was also in 30 Days of Night, so a little bit of a yep. 30 Days of Night yep. comparison there. All right, well let's move on to that last one there, Rufus Sewell.
1: Uh Dark City. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Dark City. I mean, I love Dark City and uh he's great in it. So yeah.
0: There you go. So that, that's a good one, Caleb. That's a good one. All right, we move on now. We go to Not Kevin Feige writes, John, uh, I agree with you 100%. That's not the point. Uh, I'm just pointing out the hypocrisy. Ooh, people misuse the word hypocrisy so much. Anyway, yes, one is a family character and the other is more adult, but ultimately this is a family film. Besides, people are uh, Pepe's role in Space Jam 2 uh, was going to be a cameo anyway. Okay, so so here's the thing. Um, not Kevin Feige this is going back several days now, but basically wrote in and say it's hypocritical that they took Pepe Le Pew out of Space Jam 2 while they still had the, the guys from Clockwork Orange, Rob, in, huh, the, a, in a background in a cameo shot. And we talked about how that's a false comparison. You cannot compare the two different scenarios and situations, which led us down this, this uh, rabbit hole of talking about how lots of kids' films or kid-targeted sort of stuff will often put in adult-themed Easter eggs that a kid won't get, but an adult watching it will and understand what that is. Plus, people misuse the word hypocr- I don't know if people understand the word hypocrisy anymore. Like, I often feel like... Um, Uh, when Vincini, let's say, it's inconceivable. And then he says to him, you keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. Right. Hypocrisy is in a direct equivalent situation when you preach against one thing and yet do that one thing yourself. I, I mean, an overt obvious one is like some televangelist talking about how evil gay people are. And then you find out he's got actually five boyfriends, you know, stroking the log for him on the daily. That's hypocrisy, right? A direct comparison scenario of preaching against a direct thing and then doing that exact same thing that you're against. That's not this. We've already stopped the scenario of Pepe Lepew and what a, a, a Easter egg in the background of a couple of guys from an old movie that these villainous characters is not a direct comparison and you are incorrect pepe was not going to be a cameo pepio actually had a direct speaking line and was going to engage with lebron james and all that kind of stuff one it was a long time seen as a beloved children's character one is an easter egg in the background that i guarantee you none of the kids are even going to know what who those characters are so i again kevin No, this is not a comparable situation. It's a false equivalency, and you cannot compare the two. And so, no, it is not hypocritical. If it's not a direct one-to-one comparison of doing something you're completely against that's completely comparable, then it's not hypocrisy. These are two different situations. It's not hypocrisy. So that's the last we're going to talk about this. All right, anyway, Tog writes, Uh, Hey, John, the Alice in Wonderland sequel was released six years after the first film because they wanted to expand on it without changing too much from the first film. Do you think that the Aladdin sequel could do the same since it will have a new story? Listen, here's the thing. I don't uh, buy, I don't buy uh, that that notion. Oh, we waited six years because it took us six years to do the story. I'm sorry. Cabin in the Woods had its screenplay written over the weekend and it's a completely celebrated movie. I don't believe any of that. How long will it take them to do Aladdin? They can write a completely new story in a weekend if they wanted to. If they want to take their time, do it over six months or do it over however long. But I don't know how long it'll take them to do the sequel. I was still kind of surprised to find out they were doing one, but I'm happy they're doing it because I love that live action Aladdin. Not as much as the original animated one, but I really did love this live-action Aladdin uh, directed by Guy Ritchie. I thought he did a terrific job, even though I thought he was a weird choice to direct it at first. Anyway, uh, so I don't know how long we're going to have to wait, but I don't think we're going to have to wait that long. I really don't. All right, next up. Uh, Josh writes... I think one piece of movie trivia that has ruined my movie-going experience is the villain equals no iPhone rule. I remember this. Uh, that being said, Sharon, unfortunately, was not using an iPhone, proving she is, in fact, the power broker, or at least bad. She is, in fact, the power broker, or at least bad. Um, again, that I don't know that we can go direct comparisons, Rob. Do you remember that whole thing when Ryan Johnson talked about the— They, the Apple wasn't going to allow people to show the villains using an iPad or an an, an iPhone. I, I don't know how strict that ever was, or if it was a unique circumstance. And then again, maybe the power broker is like a dread pirate Roberts sort of situation, a title that gets passed from person to person. And maybe they're not as bad as they let their reputation make them sound like they are. I mean, I don't know, but I, well, I do think that Sharon is the most likely candidate, even though it's a bad option. I don't think the fact that she wasn't using an iPhone is proof that that means she is the Dread Pirate Roberts of Falcon Winter Souls. I don't know, Rob. What do you think about that?
1: Uh, I I think that's probably correct. Although I do now, I, if if it turns out to be that way, I'm never going to not think about her as being the Dread Pirate Roberts. <laughs> I mean, I can't. You you know, I I bought uh, I bought Elizabeth a a great. It wasn't made by Hot Toys, but a really good Dread Pirate Roberts figure, and she has it on her desk. So I see the Dread Pirate Roberts every day when I walk out to do the shows here. So (laughs) that's Uh, not something I'll ever forget. Now, all
0: right, let's do one more while we still got Rob here. This next one comes to us from Dom, who writes. I'm feeling, uh, I'm kind of feeling the characters in Falcon and Winter Soldier have tunnel vision with the dangers of super soldiers. I don't know how you feel, but I feel like the rest of the galaxy is a much scarier place. Aliens, magic, Thanos as guardians, Hulk, and so much more. Well, see, here's the thing though, Dom. Um, that's like saying we're not worried about the guy up the street who just bought five assault rifles living in our neighborhood, when hey, there are nuclear missiles and armies with tanks and long-range lasers. Well, no, you still worry about this as a problem, especially with the history of the super soldier serum. So, yeah, they don't want these guys just running around, people who get injected with this. Plus, it theoretically becomes something, Rob, that they can mass produce. It's something that they can mass produce. Like, you can't just all of a sudden snap and have 50 Asgardians running around in your neighborhood. So... I, I think they understand what the danger can be. You see the good that Captain America has done. The opposite can be done in the wrong hands, especially now that you got seven or eight of them running around and maybe more unless this is dealt with. So I don't think it's comparative threat. I think it's still just a threat. I don't know, Rob, how do you see that? How should they be looking in the MCU at the threat of the super soldiers running around?
1: Well, like you just said, I mean, it's all relative. Think about how like here on this planet, If you were to go to Syria, how dangerous Syria is. The country's been destroyed, torn by civil war. There's 100,000 troops in the Crimea Peninsula massing on Ukraine's border right now. You know, there's plenty of places on our own planet that are incredibly more dangerous than most of the neighborhoods that we're in. And yet we're not thinking about that. You know, I mean, it's still Thanos already came to Earth and snapped half the population away. But. You still have to deal with the reality of daily life that we have to get up and go to bed and still live in this world. And like you said, what if half the population was suddenly taking super soldier serum? What would that mean to the rest of us? It'd be kind of terrifying. And that would be something we'd have to deal with on an immediate basis, like right now. Whereas who knows what extraterrestrial threat that might take years before it shows up on earth, but you could have super soldiers on your doorstep tomorrow.
0: All right, Rob, we've taken you over time again today, but thanks for being here, and thanks for getting that last question in, by the way. Uh, in the meantime, Rob, you got a lot of big stuff going on, but where can people follow you and your adventures
1: online? You can find me on uh, Instagram at Robert My Burnett, find me on Twitter at BurnettRM, or find me on my own YouTube channel, The Burnett Work. All right,
0: dude. Thanks a lot for being here. Have a good one, and I will talk to you again tomorrow, my friend. Have a good one. All right, will do. Guys, the great, the one and the only, Mr. Robert Meyer Burnett. Of course, he'll be back on again tomorrow, but we still have some time here, guys. I'm going to take off my headphones since I don't need them anymore. They do get uncomfortable after a while. I guess all headphones do. Let's move on now with more of your questions, shall we? We're going to keep things going here. Uh, oh, that was Dom, so let's move on up to Glenn Tracy. And Glenn Tracy writes, I love that secondhand cap. I like second secondhand cap. I love that secondhand cap wants to be a hero, but is flawed. He took the serum and killed someone the same day. We all know Zemo is a villain, but when the serum spills towards him, I thought for a second, will he, he stays so consistent and doesn't blink. No. And again, I don't, th- I don't think that says anything good about Zemo's character. It just reinforces Z- Zemo's convictions, right? Convictions are not in and of themselves good things. Like Thanos had a conviction that I had to eliminate half the half of life in the universe. A conviction is, is neither good nor bad. A conviction can be a good thing. It can be a bad thing. But I love that they kept Zemo to his conviction. And his conviction is this stuff is bad and should be eliminated. And he stayed true to that conviction. John Walker, I mean we've never really been clear on what his convictions are. But remember, he says earlier in the show, hey, as long as we get the job done, they don't care how we do it, right? Remember he said that earlier in the in sh- in the uh, in the series? So him thinking to get the job done, I just got my ass handed to me by these Dora Milaje. They weren't even super soldiers. I'm getting spit at. I'm getting rejected. I'm not getting the job done. And we know already that his conviction is, Get the job done. Who cares how it's done? You just get the job done. And so he saw taking the serum as an avenue to getting the job done. That doesn't mean his conviction was right or wrong. It just means that was his conviction. So really, the Walker character was staying true to his conviction as well. So it's just good. But as, you know, Dr. Erskine was always worried that the super soldier serum can only be in the best of the best character of man. Only Steve Rogers can be Captain America. And now we're going to see how that kind of devolves the John Walker character. It's going to be interesting to watch. All right, secondhand cap. I still love the way you put that, Glenn. All right, next up, we've got Dark Knight Rises who writes, Hey John, I just saw and thoroughly enjoyed Russell Crowe in Unhinged. I still gotta watch that. Uh, not a great movie, but boy, in a in a film only 90 minutes, uh, what he does with that material. Few actors have such raw authority and power at their disposal. Anything else upcoming for him? Well, I mean, we've got him coming up in Thor: Love and Thunder. We know that. Uh, it's probably a pretty small role, I'm guessing, but we we know he's gonna pop pop up in Thor: Love and Thunder. I still haven't. It is a crime that Russell Crowe is my all-time favorite actor, and I still haven't watched Unhinged. I just never got around to watching Unhinged, and I need to, and what you're saying, Dark Knight, is exactly what I've been hearing. That is, the movie's not great. Holy shit, Russell Crowe's amazing. That's what I keep hearing, and that's good enough for me, so I got to get around to watching that. All right. Uh, Next up, Carla Wilson writes, hey, John. You often discuss the highest grossing film rankings. While I agree it's an achievement in any era, uh, do you not think rankings adjusted for inflation is a much fairer and more important accolade? If not, uh, why? Yeah, Carla, this is a question that I've actually been sent about 100 times. And it's an understandable question. So the question often comes, hey, why don't when, because you know inflation changes, right? The value of the dollar changes over the decades. When we talk about the top grossing movies, should we not be taking into consideration inflation? It is a fair question. My answer to that has always been and stays, absolutely not. You absolutely do not take inflation into consideration. And I'll tell you why. Because while it is fair to point out that inflation is let's call it an adjustable expectation, right? That it is an adjustable or a influx kind of variable. It's a variable. Inflation is a variable. What everybody then ignores is that, okay, but inflation is not the only variable, There are dozens of other variables, some of which are even more impactful than inflation is. And my whole thing is if you want to take, you either got to take all the variables into consideration or you take none of them in and just go by the pure number. You can't just pick and choose one variable or two variables. You either got to take them all or take none. For example... Inflation is a variable, the value of the dollar and what a certain dollar spent at the box office represents depending on the era that you're in. Is that a variable? Yes. But guess what else is a variable? The number of movies actually out. Every year, at least up until 2019, you know, before the pandemic, we were on a streak of like 20 plus years in a row where more and more released movies into theatrical exhibition came out year after year after year after year. You know, it used to be that you get like two movies come out on a weekend. By the time we got to 2019, we were hitting some weekends that would have five major releases. And that's only considering the North American market. So, yeah, it's great if you were a movie in like 1979 and you had like maybe, you know, seven or eight other films out there that you're competing with on a global market giving a window. That's different than having to compete against 30 or 40. Every year, more and more, the number kept growing for like 20-plus consecutive years of the number of theatrically exhibited films. The competition level is just different. You cannot ignore that variable. Also, what about the variable of television? You know, up till a certain point, TVs weren't in every house in America. So movies prior to the advent of television, had it much easier in some ways than after the advent of television. I mean, a lot of people thought when television came out that that was it, movies were going to be done. When TVs came out and everybody had on-screen entertainment in their home, the thought at the time was that movies are done. So movies that came out during the era of television had much harder and stiffer competition for entertainment dollars and entertainment time than movies that came out prior to the advent of television. That is a major variable. What about video games? You know, back in the 70s and to, to, to a degree in the 80s and stuff like that, movies didn't have to compete for disposable income entertainment dollars. Movies didn't have to compete against the multi tens of billions of dollars video game industry. Where now a lot of kids are spending a large percentage of their disposable income On the newest, you know, um, uh, what's the one one I'm looking for? Whether it's the newest iteration of a Warcraft or some new iteration of the latest first-person shooter or whatever, you know, and you're buying the new Xbox series. You're buying the new PlayStation 5 or whatever. The competition for the disposable income dollars, which is what movies and video games both go after. They both go after disposable income dollars. The amount of time certain people play video, playing video. This is another level of competition that a different era of movies never had to compete against. And don't think for a second that that's not a major factor. It is absolutely a major factor. It is a huge, back to the V word, variable. Look, at the end of the day, what my point about uh, inflation is, is inflation a significant variable? Absolutely but it's just one of many significant variables. And you can't just pick and choose which variable you want to apply and then ignore all the other variables. So to me, while not a perfect solution, the most common sense solution is you just discard the variables. And you have to acknowledge that, look, every movie in every era faced its own set of unique challenges, competition, and obstacles that they have to overcome in order to be successful and those obstacles that are in their way and those challenges that every era of film face will be different from era to era. That's not an apples-to-apples comparison. So, no, I do not believe when considering all-time box office grosses that you should be considering inflation because while inflation may favor one era of movie, that movie didn't have to face the other challenges that modern movies have to face. And so the only fair thing to do is just to ignore them all together. It's not a perfect thing. The perfect thing would be to have a really good mathematical formula to truly break down everything, bringing all the variables into consideration, but that's not realistic. So you either take all the variables or you don't take any of them. I think the most level field way to do is to acknowledge that every era of movie has its own unique set of challenges that other eras didn't have to face, whether it's inflation, video games, television, uh, the proliferation of streaming services, a number of movies in theaters, whatever, just go straight down the line. So anyway, that's my take on that. Thanks for writing in the question, Carl. I appreciate that. All right, next up. Connor forever writes what WrestleMania is going to be on a rain delay. I didn't know that a complete disaster ruined my favorite night of the year. Peacock. Is this what I signed up for total mess? Well, I mean, first of all, I never heard that WrestleMania was on a rain delay, but I'm pretty sure Peacock doesn't control the weather, brother. <laughs> I'm pretty sure Peacock doesn't control the weather. It is what it is. They, they held WrestleMania in an outdoor stadium. If it rained, it rained again. I didn't even know about that, but if it rained, it rained. All right. King Kong Megatron writes. Hey, John and Rob greetings again from London. I hope you're both keeping well. Uh, I am one of the few who still buys physical media, as is Rob, uh, Blu-rays. And I was wondering whether it uh, whether shows like Mandalorian or WandaVision will ever be released on Blu-ray. Thanks. Uh, good question. Now, I believe I heard, although I've never seen anything to back this up, I thought, and maybe you guys in the live chat can help me with this. I believe I heard um, that... Th- that Mandalorian was going to be released on Blu-ray, but I again, I haven't seen any information that actually validated that information, uh, but I believe I heard that. But even if they do that for Mandalorian, and even if they do that for WandaVision, it won't last long. Because again, the idea of Disney Plus is they make these shows to make you and I sign up for Disney Plus right? So making these shows available on Blu-ray, they may do that right now just to ease people into the paradigm shift, but don't expect that to last for long because putting these things out on Blu-ray is actually counterproductive to what Disney Plus's end goal is, which is get people to sign up for Disney plus on a subscription basis. So they may do it right now, Uh, but I have a feeling it won't be done for long. All physical media is dying. I I mean, so it just is, that's not a preference. That's just a fact. It is Rob talks about this all the time, but especially for these streaming services, don't expect it to last for long, but I do think you can right now, if I'm not mistaken, and I could be, I still think you can get it right now. Anyway, Uh, by the way, Mr. Wolfgang sends in a super chat badge and live chat. Thank you, Mr. Wolfgang. Appreciate that, man. All right, next up. Uh, we go to Wakanda forever writes, well, that, uh, that image is ingrained in my brain for the rest of my life. Growing up, the most memorable image for me was Superman kneeling before Zod and Superman two. What is the most memorable image of modern DCEU of modern DCEU? Huh? That's a good one. You know what? To me that when I think DCEU, my favorite image in my head isn't even from what I think is easily the best DCU movie, which is Man of Steel. It's actually from Batman versus Superman. And it was actually in that one trailer. The image of Batman standing by his bat signal and looking up as the lightning flashes. And you see Batman and you also see the silhouette of the Superman as the lightning flashes in the sky. like that is one hell of an image. That to me is one hell of an image. So I personally love that one a lot. That one stands out to me a lot. Okay, uh, next up, Connor writes. Okay, John, I said I would write in to get your thoughts. Did you have a favorite match? Again, I didn't. I didn't watch WrestleMania. I just. I didn't have the opportunity. Uh, what do you think of Wrestle Rain here? P.S. Now that things are reopening, uh, live events. What are you most looking forward to attending in person? The thing now that things are starting to reopen and we're heading towards recovery. We're not there yet, but um, like right now, I wouldn't go to a concert venue. I wouldn't go to that. Not, not with people crowd, crowded around you, no. But the thing I am, one of the things, and this may sound like a little thing, that I'm really most looking forward to getting back to is, and this is going to be specific, John Williams, the maestro of the movies concert that they do every year at the Hollywood Bowl. It's my one of my favorite events every year that Ann and I do. Every year, John Williams does this big orchestral concert at the Hollywood Bowl called the Ma- Maestro of the Movies where he plays all of his iconic movie music and then he brings in other themes as well and plays music from other iconic movies as well. It's one of the best things ever. Obviously, you can't do that today, hopefully soon, but that's the one thing that I'm really looking forward to doing and getting back to uh, in a specific way once they open this stuff up again. I- I'm very, very excited about it and uh, I hope, I hope, it's something we're going to be able to do uh, really soon. All right. Next up, uh, we've got uh Brazilian dude who writes, just read an article in Variety about nobody. Uh, the writers say it's actually based on a true story. Uh, the real guy is, in fact, an effing nobody from Canada, <laughs> uh, from Canada, as he puts it, who runs a movie YouTube channel but kicks all sorts of ass. I wonder who it is. I mean, okay, so that aside, nobody. Let's talk for a second about Bob Odenkirk and nobody. Guys, I mean... Yeah, the bigger, more fun one was probably Godzilla vs. Kong, but if you guys haven't seen Nobody and you have the opportunity to get to a theater to watch it, do go and watch it. It was ridiculous, ridiculous fun. It I had such a good time, just ridiculous fun. Uh, Bob Odenkirk, Christopher Lloyd was fantastic in it. RZA pops up in it. Just a really, really fun. No Oscar winners coming out of this. It's not going to win any Oscars, but it's just a damn fun uh, movie. So do check it out if you get a chance. All right, next up, uh, Michael Bradley writes, "Hello, John. When you mentioned Sam Wilson is a diplomat, all I could think of was Kenneth Branagh and Tennant, good with fists for a diplomat." Um, yeah, well, I mean, so I mean, Sam is not literally a diplomat, but you know, he he counseled people, right? He knew how to work with people, particularly people in positions of war, right, and how to help them, right? So in that sense, he has the skills of a diplomat. And I thought they played that very beautifully in that one episode of Falcon Winter Soldier where he finally got to get face-to-face with Carly. And you could see how skilled he was at this. How skilled he was at actually having a conversation with her and start to make her understand herself a little bit and kind of maybe talk her down until, of course, John Walker barged in and ruined everything. But, yeah, it was really cool to see that side of Sam Wilson. I thought that was great. It's a unique ability he has that none of the other Avengers really have. Right? Like, is probably better at that than any of the other Avengers could have been. So that was a really interesting thing to see. All right, next up, Wakanda Forever writes, uh, Everyone have a great day. Love you guys. Wakanda Forever. Thanks, man. It's always nice to hear a nice little message like that. Thanks for sending that in, dude. All right, Lisa writes, Proud mom here. Always good to be a proud mom. Uh, Proud mom here asking if you could give a shout out of congrats to my daughter Isabella who just got accepted to Dawson College in Montreal. She's studying 3D animation and computer generated imagery. Uh, Her dream is to work for Disney Animation one day. Well, first of all, Big shout out to Isabella for getting accepted into Dawson. Listen, this is a field that is only going to grow. More and more artists are going to be needed for stuff like that. The highly skilled people are always needed. Uh, So congrats on getting into that. I know that's not the easiest program to get into. And also congrats on having a mom who would want to give you a shout out like that. So Lisa, thanks for sending that in. Thanks for being a good mom. And congratulations to Isabella for that. I hope to see your name in the credits of a Disney or Pixar movie someday. That would be great to see. All right, next up, uh, Robert writes, or sorry, Robert by her Annette writes, holy crap, that ending to Falcon and the Winter Soldier was probably the best ending I've seen Marvel do for anything they've ever produced. White Russell and uh, Carly uh, Skoglund Sco- are dynamite additions to this franchise. Yeah, listen, I know everybody, we all want to hate on the Walmart Captain America. I know when he showed up at the end of episode one, I made fun of the face in the mask and Walmart Captain America. I am telling you, this is an amazing character. With all of his brokenness and mistakes and the good things about him turning into bad, this is a fascinating character. And they really put a spotlight on him in this last episode. I mean, just love him. The Carly, again, Carly's another great character who has multiple dimensions. She's not a good guy or a bad guy. She's a girl who saw an injustice and wanted to do something about it, but it's driven her more and more to a darker place to the point that she's blowing up buildings with civilians tied up inside. I mean, it's it's amazing how they've made these characters multidimensional, and I love what they're doing with them. Uh, do it a lot. All right, next up, Double B Studios writes, Hey, John. Uh, not going to guess what happens next episode. Uh, I love guessing what happens in the next episode. It's all that kind of stuff. Uh, not going to guess what happens in the next episode. Just sitting back and eating. Uh, and eating what they bring to the table. After episode four, the effects of the snap are inevitable. Uh, Thanos continues to win. Uh, plaguing everyone, no matter uh human or how powerful the character is. And yet, listen. They... I mean, I, this wasn't what Thanos is outcome wanted so I don't know I'd say that Thanos won or this is Thanos winning this is different from what his goals were but still um, but so we see they what I am loving about the MCU right now is that they are making everything multi-layered right they are not ignoring massive things that happen you know they're not ignoring little things that happen here and there within the MCU they have repercussions later on You know, yay, the Hulk snapped everybody back. It's not just happily ever after. There are problems that will come with that. Three billion people suddenly appearing in the world, a world that has had five years to adjust of having three billion less people around. All of a sudden now, three billion more people appear. That's going to cause problems, right? That need to be dealt with. And the fact that they're doing everything on such a multi-layered level, I think speaks very well for them. All right, last one we're going to do today here, guys, comes us from Double B Studios, who writes in, uh, one more thing, Feige sure chose the right people so far to direct episodes for shows and movies. I can see him doing X-Men stories outside of the Marvelverse and every now and then have a multiverse movie maybe. I don't know. He always figures out something. Yeah, listen, that goes back, Double B, to what I've, the reason I didn't want Disney to win the Fox bidding war was because I wanted X-Men to remain separate from the MCU. I still do. I still think the MCU is becoming way too overcrowded. I I really do feel, I'm loving it. Don't get me wrong. I'm really enjoying it, but it's also becoming overcrowded. And I just think X-Men would be better served if they were in their own separate universe. That being said, you kind of nail it. I, I trust Kevin Feige. Kevin Feige has consistently shown that he knows what he's doing. And while I think the best thing to do is to keep them in a separate universe, I don't think that's what Kevin's going to do. And I just trust that Kevin will find a way to make it work. It's going to be a challenge. It's going to be difficult. And by the way, Black Bono Lala sends in a Super Chat badge in the live chat. Thank you, Black Bono. I appreciate that, man. It's going to be a challenge. It's going to be difficult. It's going to be tricky, but he will find a way. Because he's Kevin Feige and that's what he does. And everything he's touched turns to gold right now. So I'll give him the benefit of the doubt. But yeah, if it were up to me, I'd I'd keep the X-Men in a completely separate universe. It's just this movie universe is getting far too overcrowded. Um and I don't think you can tell proper stories. But you know, w- adding like 50 more characters like that come with X-Men. This is the MCU world is now already a world where on every single street corner there's a superpowered being. I I don't know. I, I worry about it, but again, Complete trust in Kevin Feige. He will find a way to make it work. All right, guys, that'll do it. For today's installment of the John Campion Show, thanks so much for being here. For guys like Movie Edit, WB, Steve Pintor, Dave the Rave, do not worry. We've got another companion video coming a little bit later today with me and Kimberly Curran. We are going to get actually all caught up on all the remaining questions. So make sure you guys check out our companion video a little bit later today. Thanks to Robert Meyer Burnett for being here. Thank you to all of you guys for spending some of your time with us here today. And a special thank you to all you guys who sent in those live comments and question tips. Number one, because you gave us great fun things to talk about. But number two, you supported this channel as you did it. And all of us here involved at the John Campus Show, thank you guys very, very much for your support. Okay, guys, once again, tomorrow, tomorrow, I love you tomorrow. Uh, tomorrow we have uh, the John Campus Show at 10 a.m. Don't forget to join us for that. But also don't forget, guys, that we are at 4 p.m. tomorrow. That's 4 p.m. Los Angeles time. That's 7 p.m. New York time. Tomorrow on Wednesday, we will be doing a live stream all about taking your questions and everything about getting a YouTube channel started, uh, we'll talk gear, software, principles, philosophies. We'll talk about how it applies if you just want to start a blog or a podcast, for example. So that's going to be tomorrow night. Make sure you guys come and join us if you have any interest in that sort of stuff at all. I've been getting a lot of requests from you guys, so that's what we're going to do tomorrow. Of course, the John Campbell Show at 10 a.m. A little bit later today, me and Kimberly Curran with a companion video. Lots of stuff going on here, guys. We hope you'll come on back. And join us for that. All right, guys. Remember to do the four main things. Stay smart. Stay safe. Take care of yourselves. And please take care of the people around you. That'll do it for me, guys. My name's John Campion. And until next time, my friends, bye-bye.